And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to The Real Investment Show. Yes, I'm back uh, as we uh, get back in the groove here on the show after just just a quick vacation. Uh, Went to go see my son in Germany. We haven't seen him in a couple of years because of all the COVID restrictions that were kind of keeping people from traveling and all that. So finally got the opportunity to go over to seas, get to see him for a week. It was great, had a great time, and I'll share some stories with you today. It's very enlightening. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, I like talking to people. So even though language barrier was a bit of a problem, um, still had some great conversations, but uh, one of our trips, and I'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, we went to Pompeii. And I talked to an archaeologist there um, that's been working the dig for the last decade or so. But very interesting views about America versus the rest of the world and what we think is going on here and what are terrible things that are happening here. They laugh at us. It's really pretty sad. So (laughs) anyway, we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. Very quick, of course. Uh, Good news is that normally when I leave town and particularly leave the country, the market crashes. That didn't happen last week. So that was actually some good news. Uh, Markets actually have been holding some support here and are looking like they're actually trying to put in a bit of a short-term bottom. Um, If we take a look back at the action here over the last few weeks, markets have really not gone anywhere and markets are trying very uh, valiantly here to try to get a bit of a rally going now this morning futures are pointing higher and so we're looking like we're going to try to get a bit of a move towards that 50-day moving average now there's a couple of good things that are happening on that front first of all we maintain our macd buy signals as well so again the bias to the markets is to the upside currently Um, once we start to make uh, this move today we're going to break out of this downtrend channel that we've been in for really since march and this is the first real kind of positive action in the markets that we've seen. Now, immediately, as soon as we break out of this downtrend channel, we're going to run right into the 50-day moving average. Now, that's going to be a fairly significant level of resistance. We've been unable to get above that really since the beginning of this year. Once we actually broke below that, we've stayed below it since March. And now here, we're trying to make this move higher. We're going into earnings season this week and next week and and the week after. This next three-week period is going to be the bulk of S&P 500 earnings. That's going to be really kind of driving the markets here. We've got Tesla reporting later this week. We're going to have a lot of the banks reporting over the next couple of days. That's really kind of setting the tone for the financial markets. And estimates, as we've been talking about, coming down rather sharply now. Just over the last week, the first week of July, there was a fairly significant cut in earnings estimates going all the way out to 2023. Now, this is the first time that we've seen estimates getting cut rather than raised. In fact, in the month of June, analysts were still ratcheting up earnings. They actually increased the rate of earnings for companies in June. But this first week of July, reality kind of hit home, and now they're starting to cut those estimates. So again, that's going to be a bit of a drag here potentially for markets as earnings estimates come down. But importantly, if the market can kind of maintain this bottoming process that we're trying to set up here and not break to new lows, there's going to be an opportunity here for this market to actually give us a fairly significant rally, which 
this is something that we've been talking about for a while, have not been getting it. You know, there's so much bearishness right now across the board. Economic data is very bad. Um, we've seen a lot of, of indicators in terms of consumer sentiment, uh, positioning, bearishness on the overall markets, economic data getting substantially weaker. Um, that's all getting to levels that are so low, they've almost got to turn up positive. I mean, at some point, just the rate of change in some of this stuff is going to start to look better. Uh, so again, this is what we kind of are looking for is as we kind of work through this process of the market, you know, how much more downside is there before stocks start trying to figure out, you know, where the bottom of this thing actually is. And I'm not saying we're, we're near a market bottom just yet, but um, as we've been talking about here for a while, there's a really good possibility that this markets, these markets could rally a good bit. And, and that would actually be kind of a good thing from a contrarian view as well. We said this before, is there's so much negative sentiment in the markets right now that we need a rally just to get people to be less bearish. Um, this is the most well-forecasted bear market and recession ever in history. We need people, we need this market to rally a bit, get the bulls back engaged into the markets, get people start talking about, oh, where recession's been avoided, it's all going to be fine, and you know, get Jim Cramer up on CNBC, you know, pounding the table to buy stocks. That's going to be what we really need to kind of set this market up. If there is going to be another leg lower, you kind of need this relief rally and kind of get some of this bearishness out of the market so that the bear market can actually do its job. And that's normal. I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's normal for bear markets. So if you go back and look at 2000 and 2008 during those bear markets, we had 10, 15% rallies consistently through both of those bear markets and you have this rally, everybody get bullish, the bottom would be called, oh, that's the bottom of the market, time to buy, and then markets would just turn around and go lower. That's how bear markets work. By the end of the bear market, nobody wants to buy stocks. And that's one of the kind of the key defining moments of this market is that still there are too many people looking. There's, you know, we talked about the fear of missing out on the way up. You know, as, as markets are going up, everybody's like, I gotta be in. The fear of missing out, I don't wanna miss out on the gains. Well, now there's the FOMO in, in the opposite manner, which is the fear of missing out of the bottom, right? Everybody's trying to time the bottom. Where's the bottom? I got all this cash, I wanna put it to work. I'm just, I wanna buy these stocks at lows. There's too many people looking to buy those bottoms. And normally, you know, again, you know, this time could certainly be different. I don't want to say that you know, every time is the same because they're not. But there's too many people looking for a bottom right now. Normally, you go back and look at the bottom of 1974, the bottom of 2001, you know, the bottom of the market in 2008. Nobody wanted to own stocks. That was the last thing people wanted to do. That's normally what happens during a bear markets. But because of what's happened over the last decade of, of Federal Reserve interventions and quantitative easing and all these types of things, all this money we've injected into the economy, into the financial markets, people are, are now convinced that anytime there's a kind of a market downturn, the, the, the Fed's going to show up and start to bail it out again. They don't want to miss that opportunity. So again, we've, we've retrained investors to really focus more on the Fed as a driver, and, and we've talked about this before, it's that Pavlovian response. When the Fed rings the bell, everybody runs in and buys stocks. That's what investors are looking for, and they don't want to try, they're all afraid ultimately of missing that bottom. So, again, there's some things that suggest that we might have a lot more work to do in this market, but uh, technically things are starting to firm up here, at least in the short term basis. So, 
that gives us an opportunity. You know, if you've been under pressure here over the last year, market portfolios underwater, et cetera, been looking for an opportunity, um, we may get the, a reasonable trade here coming up over the next you know, week or so uh, to, to basically kind of rejigger portfolios. Now, having said that, July is typically a little bit stronger month. And as we move into August and September, those tend to be weaker months. So whatever rally we get, we may wind up with a bit more trouble in markets in August and September. Historically speaking, right, we're just talking about seasonality. Now, seasonality has not worked well this year at all. Things that were supposed to work didn't work. So again, August, September might turn out to be good. But normally, August, September tend to be a bit weaker in terms of market action. There's a lot of things that are going on, right, in those two months, a lot of vacations in Europe. Uh, etc. So again, there's some risk here um, that suggests that to, to, again, as I said, use kind of rallies to get portfolios repositioned as we move into later part of this year. But again, earnings are going to be the key driver. When we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit about earnings, what to expect this season as we get into it, your money and more right here on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning at 617. So, as I said, um, we're getting right into the midst of earnings season here this morning and, and kind of started a little bit last week. Um, it's going to pick up a lot of traction here over the next two weeks, next three weeks, actually. That'll be where, you know, the majority of the S&P 500 will start to announce their earnings. And, of course, earnings estimates, all kind of all eyes <laughs> are on earnings right now because that's the big risk to the markets. Uh, again, as we take a look at, you know, what happened, you know, in the first quarter in particular, you know, Earnings estimates were still very high, and yet a lot of companies were coming out talking about, you know, weaker outlooks. They were talking about, uh, you know, inventory bills, those type of things. In fact, a good example of this, so while I was in Italy, Amazon had their Prime Day, July 12th and 13th. So it was interesting because it was a blowout. They did a record amount of sales for Amazon Prime Day. Now, the interesting thing about that was is that, that while they did a record amount of sales, which, again, immediately the you know, kind of headlines were is the consumer is obviously very strong here because you know, they're just spending money left and right at Amazon Prime. Um, these, a lot of these things were heavily discounted. There were, there were televisions that were 80% off their retail price. And this is just a, func a function of having too much inventory 
it's got to be moved out the door. And so, you know, if you were needing a television, July 12th or 13th was the day to buy it. Um, but again, I think we're going to see a lot of this as we kind of go forward over the course of the next, you know, several months. A lot of this inventory build that's built up, not just at Amazon, but also at Walmart, Target and others. Um, we're going to see a lot of back-to-school items being heavily discounted. So once we get a little bit closer here to the back-to-school shopping season, that's going to kick off in just the next week or two, um, we're going to start to see some pretty heavy discounts on those items as people get ready to, to go back to, back to school and these type of things. So, uh, again, you know, this is where we got those warnings in the first quarter from companies. Now we're seeing it actually happen in the second quarter. And so what's going to be important as we start to report earnings for the second quarter is going to be, well, you know, just what has that impact been? And our earnings estimates and, and what was expected by Wall Street, you know, are those realistic rather, you know, considering what's about to come in? And, and that we don't know yet. Now, normally, you know, we would, you know, Wall Street does a pretty good job of ratcheting down the earnings expectations heading into earnings season so that companies tend to meet estimates or beat estimates. This is why there's always, you know, it's always interesting, you know, it's always rung out on the headlines, you know, 80% of companies beat estimates. They always, it's always about that number, right? Because Wall Street's always bringing down the estimates so that companies can beat them. So, you know, if, if we wanted to hold Wall Street to be honest about things, they should have to come out at the beginning of the quarter and say, okay, Amazon's going to report $2 a share. And then they can't. Once you make that bid, right, you can't change it. And then so at the end of the quarter, let's see how good of a forecaster you actually are and see what they actually report. And, and But, again, we don't do that, right? So we say $2 at the beginning of the quarter. Everybody gets all excited. By the end of the quarter, they're down to $0.50 cents a share. And then the company comes in at $0.51. Cents and we all go, woohoo, they beat estimates. But they're $1.50 off where they thought they were going to be, right? And this happens all the time, but we just don't pay attention to the estimate changes, right? That's why I track this stuff and pay attention to it because it's important. You know, the, the value of what you're paying for stocks at the beginning of the quarter can be vastly different than the value you're getting at the end of the quarter. And that's an important point. But again, we don't normally know these things in advance and we don't keep up with these things on a regular basis. And, and so we kind of just kind of blindly do things and then wonder why when a company comes out and, you know, misses earnings or, or makes a comment, then the stock gets blown out 25, 30 percent. Everybody goes like, you know, what happened? But pay attention to earnings. And over the next three weeks, we're going to have, again, uh, we'll get the bulk of the S&P in. And we'll get a good and, and really it's not going to be as much. Now, look, I think there's a potential risk here that we could see a lot of companies missing estimates. What's going to be really important is their forward guidance, right? Has, you know, have these companies already told you the worst or is there more coming, right? Or as th have things been getting weaker over the course of the last, you know, quarter as they look forward? And so what are those outlooks going to be? We're, you know, we're going to get Netflix. Netflix had, uh, you know, a big subscriber drop off last quarter. What's it going to be this quarter? Did that come back? Did more people sign up for Netflix or did more people stop subscribing to Netflix? You know, these are these are the things that we're going to be looking for because, you know, Amazon took a big hit, you know, in the first quarter as well in their stock price. And, you know, 
Has that all been priced in? And that's going to be one other thing that we want to look at here very closely as we start talking about trying to potentially find a bottom in the market. One of the things that we're going to be looking for in particular is companies that come out and miss estimates or meet estimates, you know, give fairly shoddy outlooks, and the stock price either goes up or stays flat. Now, if that happens, if, if a company comes out and says, hey, we missed by a penny and the outlook, you know, for the next quarter isn't great, but maybe we see a little bit of firming and the stock price doesn't go down a lot or it, it stays flat or even potentially goes up, that suggests that, that, you know, the bad news is priced into that stock. And there may be an opportunity here to start nibbling on some positions that do that, right? And there's a lot of companies that we've been talking about since the beginning of this year you know, we go back to those, you know, we talked about ARK Investments. You know, a lot of those companies are down 70, 80 percent. How much more downside is there? Some of them may be another a lot, right? Um, but there's probably a few companies in that disruptor group, as an example, that actually have viable outlooks. And maybe if they're already down 80 percent, maybe a lot of that bad news is already priced into those stocks. And there may be some opportunity to start nibbling around the edges on some of those things. And that's what we'll be looking for. Now, I'm not making any, I'm not saying we're about to go out and start buying stuff, right? I'm just saying that those are the those are the things that we're looking for to suggest that maybe we can find some opportunities. And again, you know, this is part of the stock picking process is to, you know, look for those diamonds in the rough that nobody wants and that everybody's kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater and and try to find those opportunities. Now, are you going to get them all right? No. You're going to buy some stuff that doesn't work. And that's okay. That's part of the process, too. And then this is, and this, and that's kind of an important part of all this is just remember, this is all a process. We're all guessing here. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. And we're all trying to make the best guesses. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. That's why risk management's always kind of a, a key goal is to control that downside so that when something starts to work, you can just kind of let it go and run and you just kind of keep working off the stuff that's not working. And, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of one of the problems that, you know, investors run into kind of consistently over time is they kind of do the opposite. They sell the stuff that's working and keep holding the stuff that's not working, hope it's going to come back. And that kind of gets you into a bad position on a regular basis. You wind up with a whole baseball team like the Bad News Bears. And, you know, you, you, you've got to kind of work through that process to get your portfolio growing. And it's a very challenging way to do it. You're, you're better off letting it, letting stuff that's working work and stuff that's not working, cut it loose and cut it loose soon. As, you know, as the old saying goes, do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And that really applies to a lot of things in life, right? Not just investing. It applies to, you know, a lot of things in business and life in general. Do do more of what's working for you. Do less of, of what's not. And you'll tend to kind of fall onto the good side of the ledger. And that's, you know, look, you're, you're going to have stuff that doesn't work, right? That's just, that's the nature of the beast. You're going to do things sometimes. It doesn't work. Let it go. Move on. And that's, that's a tough thing to do a lot of times because one of the things that we tend to do psychologically and especially when managing money in, in, in times of uncertainty like we have now, right? I mean, on one side of the ledger, we've got 10% inflation and we've got, you know, earnings that are weak and we've got economic growth that is weakening. Why on earth want to be buying stocks? You know, these are those times that we've got to set those psychological biases aside and say, look, I know what that is. I know what I'm dealing with. 
And I've got to start looking for these opportunities that may exist. Because if I wait for the economy to come back, if I wait for all these things to improve, the market will have already sniffed that out well in advance and will have already moved significantly ahead of the time before you see that, that data improve, right? That economic macro data. It's important to keep a watch on that macro data. Don't get me wrong. But just understand the market's going to front run that, mar that economic macro data, just like it did this year. You know, the market was selling off early this year before we start getting negative, you know, economic reports. Now, the, the market will start to improve before we start seeing better economic reports. And we're going to be not understanding that at all. It's like, oh, we just got this terrible, this terrible economic report and the market's going up. Why? Because the market's sniffing out that you're closer to a bottom than not. And again, you take a look at a lot of these, these economic data points, you know, the city surprise index, the uh, beige book index, three-month rate of change, you know, all these type of things. These things are at lows that are normally seen at the bottom of recessionary periods. And importantly, they don't stay there that long. Once they get down there, they tend to bounce and start to recover, just like anything else that oscillates. So again, once you start getting down to the lows on these things, be paying attention to the fact that we could be getting close to a point where we start seeing things doesn't necessarily mean they're getting better. They're just getting less bad. And less bad eventually leads to better. I know that's kind of a weird way of thinking, thinking about things, but this is what you got to be paying attention to. So, you know, as we go into earnings season, I said, you know, things are going to be, I, I suspect, we're going to see earnings, you know, disappointments. We're going to see outlooks that aren't great. And the question will be whether or not stock prices have priced those in or not. I don't have that answer. That's what we're going to find out over the next few weeks. All right. I'm Real Science Roberts. Be right back after the break. Talk about some other stuff. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com inflation touches every aspect of your life no one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation ria advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn thursday august 4th at noon register now at realinvestmentadvice.com there's no magic elixir against inflation our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, of course. Um, you know, as we're talking about here just in the last segment, uh, earnings season upon us, and that's going to be kind of the, the big thing. And again, you know, uh, big banks are reporting right now. We saw uh, last week uh, banks kind of kick off uh, a bit, and, and that's going to continue this week. <clears throat> and so they're kind of setting the tone. Yield curves are inverting. 
uh, the 10 year, two year, obviously deeply inverted right now, but now other uh, measures of the yield curve uh, are starting to invert as well. And just, you know, quick primer, if you don't know what an inverted yield curve is, it simply just says that when you take the look at two different yields, as an example, um, like for instance, right now, the one year treasury bill is yielding about 3%. The 10 year treasury bill is yielding 2.93%. So the one-year bill is higher, gives you more money than the long-term bill. So why would I buy the long-term treasury when I can get 3% on a one-year treasury, right? Well, that's an inversion. And what that, what that does to the – what that it tells you two things. One, it tells you that money isn't moving in the economy. Nobody wants to loan money out for, th for 10 years, but they'll loan it out for three years. So that has impacts to things like capital expenditures and construction and those type of things. So long-term projects start to get put on hold because, you know, there's concern. Uh, and what, the, what, the, what these yield curves tell you is they're concerned about the economy. I don't want to invest, you know, the economy's slowing down. I don't want to borrow money long-term. I want to keep my money short-term, right? That's what that's telling you. And so when you're seeing things like the one-year, 10-year inverted, the two-year, 10-year is now inverted. So we're starting to see more and more of these yield curves that are inverted. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, that means we're having a recession. Uh, well, they are a good recession indicator, um, but not when they're inverting. When they're inverting, they're just telling you that there's real concern about the economy. When they uninvert, that tells you you're in a recession and they haven't uninverted yet. So... And there's also another fact. It's not one yield curve or two that's important, right? So a lot of people focus on the 10-2 yield curve. And they go, well, the 10 and the 2 are now inverted, and that means we've got to have a recession. Well, it's not just one yield curve that matters. It's when a bulk of them have inverted. And again, you know, in our own shop, you know, here at Real Investment Advice, you know, we track 10 different yield curves, and we watch – for when the majority of those yield curves have inverted. So you're looking for more than 50% of the yield curves in those 10 measures that we track to invert. And that gives you a much better indication about A, where you are in the economic cycle, and B, when those start to uninvert, that tells you really you're in the midst of a recession. And you know we're seeing more and more of those yield curves beginning to invert, and they have not uninverted yet. So again, doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a recession right now. Does suggest that there's some economic problems, which I don't think is any big surprise when you're running, you know, eight and a half, nine percent inflation, that you're having some economic problems, right? That's just, you know, things are starting to slow down here a bit. But, you know, again, when you get these high inflation numbers, we had a strong employment report last week. A quick note on that, by the way. A lot of people talking about how strong of an employment report that was, right? We employed like 400,000 people. It's great. Now, that headline employment report certainly gives the Fed room to go ahead and hike interest rates. And fairly aggressively, there's estimates now they might hike 1% at the next meeting. But the problem with all this employment data is there's a lot of fudging to these these numbers, right? So they, they basically call up 60,000. There's... You know what they they have a call list, right? And they call sixty thousand households, you know, on the second Tuesday of every month, and they say, "Are you working, Brent? Are you working? Not working? What, what's going on with you?" And Brent doesn't want to say, "Well, no, I've been unemployed for six months." He says, "So I'm self-employed, <laughs> right?" 
Consulting. Yeah. He's consulting, yes. yes. I have a consulting job. I work at home now. So they mark that down, right? And then we apply some mathematical adjustments to it, and then we apply what's called this birth-death adjustment, which always adds jobs to the role despite the fact that we've been losing more small businesses than gaining them. But it makes the employment number look better. And then we come out with this official employment report, which is just a guess at what the employment situation looks like. Now, the problem with it is, is it's just a guess. Now, in a year, we'll go back and revise this data, and it'll likely be worse as we get to 12 months from now. And then three years from now, we'll revise it again. And that's because we've gotten more actual real-time data, and we now know what the actual data is. But it takes 12 to 36 months to get it. So, you know, we're reacting to markets and trying to make financial policy decisions in terms of quantitative easing and tightening and hiking rates and all this on very flaky data. More importantly, there is what's called the household survey. Now, the household survey is the unofficial data. They come from the actual survey. So this is the data that is gathered when people are calling Brent up at his house and saying, Brent, are you working? That's a household survey. From that household survey, they then manipulate the data and do all their gun stuff to it, and they come up with the official employment report that's put out. Right. So that's the number you hear on CNBC. Behind that is the household survey that nobody pays attention to. Now, why is that even important? Well, it's important because last week when they reported the employment number and we, we showed these 400,000 jobs increasing, the household survey actually said we lost a lot of jobs. And not only did we lose a lot of jobs, we lost full-time employment. We lost part-time employment. In fact, the only people that saw an increase in employment were those that were multiple job holders. In other words, people working two or three part-time jobs. Which tells you a lot more about the state of the economy. If the state of the economy was strong, you wouldn't see multiple job holders increasing while people were losing full-time and part-time jobs. So what's happening is, is people are losing full-time jobs and they're going out to get a couple of part-time jobs or driving an Uber and a Lyft and driving for FedEx all at the same time. So they're delivering packages and they've got a trunk full of packages while they're Ubering some guy around in the back seat, right? So it's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to get you to your restaurant, but I got to make a quick stop first, <laughs> deliver a package. But that's what's going on. Now, that certainly doesn't sound to me like that is an extraordinarily strong employment situation. But again, that's not what the Fed looks at. Now, the Fed's making these policy decisions saying, well, look, we got inflation running at, at 9% and we've got this really strong employment in the economy. So the, the economy can clearly withstand higher interest rates. So we've got this room to go ahead and hike rates. And, and that's what they're doing. But that's how we wind up ultimately with these policy mistakes because they hike into a slowing economic environment. So, again, the economy is already slowing, right? We've already got higher interest rates. We've already got, you know, uh, you know weaker consumption data, got negative consumer sentiment, et cetera. So, again, you know, the economy is already slowing down. And, you know, I kind of think about it this way. You're driving a car down the freeway, right, and you take your foot off the gas, and so the car is already starting to slow down. And as you're going down the freeway, the, the freeway starts to incline, right? You're going over a bridge. 
an overpass. So now your foot's off the gas. The momentum of the car is going to slow a lot more because now you're on an incline, and in the middle of this incline, you slam on the brakes. Right now, the car's on the incline in neutral, and the Fed's starting to apply brakes, which means that we're going to stop a lot sooner than we would have given just the natural organic slowdown of the economy due to higher inflation, higher rates, weaker consumption. That's the risk. And this is why, you know, historically, whenever the Fed starts, you know, hiking rates and, and doing these things, we ultimately, sooner than later, wind up in a recession or potentially something even worse. And, you know, will this time be different? Sure, it's possible. This time is the time. This is the one time that the Fed is able to engineer a soft landing. They've never done it before, but but this could be the one time, right? And, and so there's always a first time for everything. Maybe this is it. We'll see. But, you know, again, you got to really take a lot of this economic data, you know, not at face value. You've got to do the work. You've got to look below the headlines and see what's actually going on because it tells you a lot more about what's happening in the economy than not. But, again, you know, I think the big risk to, you know, the markets over the next, you know, couple of months in particular is going to be earnings, right, and outlook. So that's going to be very key here, but also the Fed. You know, the Fed is, is, is anchored at this point to, to hiking rates to combat inflation. Their sole focus remains inflation. And as long as the markets are doing okay, and look, this hasn't been a really disorderly decline this year, right? I mean, it's, it sucked. I mean, this has been a terrible year for the markets. But the markets are down, you know, yes, but it's been a very orderly decline. Markets are kind of rallying now. Starting to see stocks recover here as we get into earnings season, starting to get some buying coming in. So, again, that just all alleviates the pressure on the Fed. The Fed's looking at the markets going, well, credit spreads aren't blowing out. Markets are, are doing okay. Yeah, they're down a little bit, but they're still higher than they were in March of 2020. So, no real concern for our financial stability, which means I've got room to hike rates. We'll see who wins. All right, quick break. We'll come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Invest. Show.
And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. So I, I told you I'd tell you a little bit about a uh, trip we had uh, last week. Went to Germany to visit our son, who we hadn't seen in a couple of years because of the COVID restrictions and all that. It's been impossible to get traveled over there. So finally, we were able to, to get there. And so we, we uh, my wife went online and she went to booking.com. And she found a house for us to rent that actually just over... We went to a city called Maori, um, which is just up the coast from Positano and overlooks the ocean. Well, this house was built in 1920 by this lady's mother. And she now lives in Naples. And she basically, all of her income comes from two sources. One is renting this house out to tourist and the other is it's got a working lemon farm that surrounds the house and and so if you can imagine when you look at the you know these these cities Maori, Minori, Positano they're they're all along the beach which is right at the bottom of these mountains so everything is on a mountainside so as you look up the mountains it's just tiered you know gardening you know there's just you know, these farms, whether they're a winery or a vineyard, um, lemons are a big thing for this particular area. So there's just, you know, these tiered uh, lemon farms all up and down the side of these mountains. It's pretty incredible, but you'd walk out of the house and it's just smell lemons. And these are big, giant lemons the size of softballs that are hanging on the trees. You just walk out and pick some lemons off, make fresh lemonade. It was pretty great. Um, but it's pretty fascinating. This house built in 1920. It's seen everything and as you overlook you know the ocean all along the ocean you see the remnants of you know castle walls and and fortifications that go all, that date all the way back to the roman era where you know they were defending pirates or invaders etc now a lot of the, it's interesting because you'll see a lot of the old watchtowers and and the remnants of of these fortifications are all now converted to either houses or restaurants so you know in fact just just down that just you know and of course you know, to, to get anywhere, you've got to walk down a, a winding road down the side of a mountain. But not too far from the, the porch of, you know, the house that we're renting is the remnant of this watchtower, which is now this kind of private club where they have weddings and events and all these types of things. And so they're, they stay booked all the time. And every night at midnight, fireworks were going off. So, you know, and we're not talking about small little firework shows these are like fourth of july 20 minute long firework demonstrations every single night for these events so you know weddings and you know everything else so they, they like their fireworks and it was it was great but anyway one of the highlights of the trip um we went to pompeii which you know i've always wanted to go to and i'm a big history buff and and uh you know it's interesting i was i was reading an article uh, over the weekend talking about inflation in the eurozone and how expensive everything is and, and this is kind of a key aspect of something i was talking about with the archaeologist and so we went to pompeii we we booked a private tour with one of the archaeologists that actually works on the dig and 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 what's amazing about pompeii is they've been uncovering pompeii now for over 100 years and there's still 25% of the city that's still under ash. And, and, and there's still, so this is still a live archaeological dig that, you know, they're still going through and unearthing things and, and finding new, you know, new, um, 
you know, pieces of history um, about Pompeii and, and what was going on there. And just some, I encourage you, if you ever get a chance to go to Italy, go to Pompeii because the history is absolutely amazing. And, and so talking about inflation, it was like, you know, somebody, I made this comment on Twitter and it's like, you know, well, man, you must be spending some big dollars, you know, you know, getting a private tour. It cost me a hundred bucks. Right. But for, you know, again, when you're in Italy, and this is one of the conversations I was having with the archaeologists talking about, um, you know, economic structures, because we were talking about the economic structure of Rome and, and Greece and, and, you know, kind of what happened throughout history. And, and you take a look at the differences between capitalism and socialism. And when you're in Italy, you can very clearly see the impact of socialism on the economy. There is a there is no middle class. You are either getting by or you're very wealthy. And there's there is no middle class. And and you know, this was one of the kind of the, the structure. So, you know, small changes in prices, if you're just making ends meet already, that's inflation. And that matters a lot to a household if you don't have a lot of income to start with. And, you know, once you get off of the tourist beaches and, and kind of the, and you get back up in the mountains, and we spent a lot of time kind of going back up into the mountain areas and looking at some of these smaller towns, you know, they are, they are not well off. Now, they're happy. I'm not saying they're not happy, right? I mean, you know, they're living their lives, doing their things. But, you know, when you compare it, and again, we, we've talked about this before, if you make $30,000 in the U.S., you are very wealthy on comparative standards in Italy. And this is the thing that we take for granted a lot is our economic fortunes that we've made here. Now, look, do we have economic inequality? Do we have you know, disparities here in the U.S. Absolutely. Corporatism is a big problem. We've talked about this on the show before. We've written articles about corporatism. But capitalism is alive and well, right? Capitalism works. People are going out, starting new businesses every day. Um, they may succeed. They may fail. But capitalism is alive and well, and it breeds better rates of wealth than any other form of economic system. In fact, there's a, you know, kind of the, the saying goes is that capitalism is the worst economic system, except compared to everybody else. And so, yeah, we may not be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we also need to understand the differences. And the best way to understand the differences, you know, I grew up, you know, I, I spent a big chunk of my life living overseas. I lived in Spain and France and Italy and a variety of places. And, you know, I saw that firsthand, and that's why I came back to the United States to work, because this is where the opportunity is to make money and to build wealth. If you want to build wealth, there is no place in the world to be other than here. If you want to build wealth. Doesn't mean you can't be happy. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that people are unhappy and they're miserable and it's terrible. I'm not saying that at all. They're very happy. But from a, a perspective, right? For us, it was very cheap. Italy seemed very cheap to us. Normally, you know, here when I go out to feed a family of seven people, <laughs> you know, you're talking, you know, a three, $400 tab at a normal restaurant these days. You know, I was feeding the whole family over there for 80 bucks at nice restaurants, right? So, you know, it's all perspective, about things. And this is the thing that we tend to lose. You know, we get so ingrained into the stuff that's happening here, whether it's, you know, 
social inequity, social injustice, you know, these types of things, you know, we get so ingrained into what we're seeing here and our social media just, you know, just you know, floods our system with, you know, all this stuff. And then when you step back out of it and you look at it from over there, and it was very fascinating to talk to, to Daniela, who was our archaeologist for our tour, and she was absolutely awesome. You know, but we were having this conversation about, you know, the, the differences in societies, you know. Over there, you can have a, you know, it's interesting here, you know, you know, you talk to a conservative in the United States and you say, okay, you know, what do you think about gun control, right? You know, it's gun control. Well, if you don't want, you know, a conservative says, hey, if you don't want guns, don't have a gun, right? I want my guns. If you don't want guns, don't have one. Other side of the coin says, nobody can have guns, right? They don't care about any of that. <laughs> you know, they're just like, you do you and I do me and we'll just all be friends, right? And, and that's, it's a, just a very different outlook. So when you're looking at it from through that lens of economics and looking through that lens of capitalism and versus socialism and all that, they clearly understand what the problems are and the differences. And that's why, you know, we have so many people that want to immigrate into the United States because opportunity-wise, capitalism provides... The, it was was the social experiment that developed better than anyone ever imagined and created more wealth than the world has ever seen but we we but again we're so entrenched into what we live in here right the the what we see on the media and what we see on, on television and the what we call news you know, we get so entrenched into these small divisions that we think the whole system is broken, and it's not the case. But, you know, again, it's just a, a very enlightening conversation to talk to somebody that lives in a different world and how they view the opportunities that we have here. And, and the, the takeaway statement from this entire conversation is, is that are all Americans just stupid or what? Do they not realize the benefit they have? Because they certainly don't seem to appreciate the opportunity. And my response was simply, I don't have an answer. By the way, did you know the Romans washed their clothes in urine? I had no idea. I did not know that. I did not know that. So... Yeah, they actually, and actually one of the uh, emperors hmm. decided to tax urine so they could make money off of the urine to wash the clothes with. So many punchlines, so uh, little time. <laughs> and, and most of them died around 35. Why? Because they Washing were... Washing their clothes in urine. Nope. Lead pipes through yes. the entire city of Pompeii to deliver yes. water. Right? Mm -hmm. They were genius. Couldn't understand why they were dying at 35 from lead poisoning, but... They had running water. <laughs> running poison. <laughs> Again, what you don't know yeah. could kill you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, wraps up the show for today. Be back tomorrow, as always, uh, back in the groove. So we'll see you tomorrow on the next edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. I send your questions, comments, emails. Our latest blog post newsletter is out, of course, uh, from this weekend. Uh, the full version of our newsletter will return back this coming weekend now that I'm back here with all of my tools and stuff. So uh, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and we'll see you tomorrow.
It's a rich man's world.